0: Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and we're joined by Jeff Gomez, the CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment, a leading expert in narrative, story worlds, and transmedia development. Jeff was a creator on the original story world of Magic the Gathering, and since then has helped develop and expand universes like Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar, Transformers, Spider-Man, Halo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so that they play out across multiple media platforms in concert. Most recently, he has served as a creative producer on the worldwide revival of Ultraman. Jeff also shaped a beautiful model of storytelling known as the Collective Journey, which we will definitely be talking more about here. Welcome, Jeff. Hey there, Colin. Now, Jeff, I'm going to jump us right in. 1987. A school called Papatoetoe Central School, which is in South Auckland, which is in New Zealand. I am at that school. I am struggling. Um, School doesn't know what to do with me. I don't know what to do with school. And one day, Mr. Gilbert, who was a a very small, very kind man with a very closely shaved beard. These are the details that we remember. Mr. Gilbert sort of sidles over to me and hands me something and he says, hey mate, look at this. So I go home, I unwrap the plastic bag, It's from a second-hand bookstore in town, and it's the original Dungeons & Dragons basic red box set. And for those of you who are not ancient like us, on the cover of this box is this dungeon passage with a huge green serpent looming over a beautiful sorceress, and this dude with a sword who's wailing away, and there's a box of treasure, and there's a magical pathway up out of it. And... More than that, inside there's all of these rules and methods to get together with your friends and to create this. So I I stayed up practically all night unpacking this. I was absolutely, I was fascinated. I I went to school the next day, ready to go, ready to find some people, ready to create this thing. And then a different teacher comes up to me around morning recess, and I'm not going to say his name, but he was. He, he also had a beard, but it was a much shaggier beard. It was a bushy beard. It was a very different teacher. It was much more conservative. And he says, and remember, this is 1987 at the height of various moral panics. says, I saw what Mr. Gilbert did. You watch out. That stuff drives people mad. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, my question to you, Jeff, and this side of point is, do you think he was right? <laughs> did we all go mad with this stuff?
1: <laughs> Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Um, uh, A a lot of uh, some of the the most wonderful creators um, that that I work with today and that I have worked with in the entertainment industry, uh, particularly video game uh, people, uh, emerged out of the uh, fantasy role-playing game period uh, uh, between the the, the early to mid-80s and the late uh, 90s. And, um, you know, it it was... uh, it's fantastic. And no, it doesn't drive you mad. It, it may be a conduit for one's madness, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But no, uh, it, it doesn't make you crazy.
0: Nice. What were your first encounters with anything like that kind of role playing?
1: Uh, well, I mean, if you're talking about role play in, in general, um, uh, my, my make believe life, uh, was extremely, um, uh, vivid and, um, uh, and detailed and convoluted and epic. Um, uh, so it, it, if, uh, as a, as a young child, the, the outdoors in, in the world that I lived in was dangerous. Um, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, I was shy. Um, I, I had a, um, uh, a facial uh, uh, a paralysis from birth, which uh, had people make fun of me. Sometimes they were bullying and um, and the, the, the neighborhood was, you know, was a, a, a low income, impoverished and, and crime ridden uh, a place in, in New York City in the early 1960s. So, you know, uh, uh, my job was to stay in my room and amuse myself. And the and, uh, stories would start being told with household items and plastic dinosaurs and whatever I could get hold of, right? And, and those became uh, kind of, almost like epic soap operas uh, played out across the, the mountains that were blankets and pillows and the valleys in between uh, on my bed. Uh, sometimes I'd even draw backdrops uh, uh, behind the, uh, the, the, the monsters. And, um, and, and it'd be like uh, a, a Japanese monster movie, except that uh, all the monsters had personal lives. <laughs> there were reasons why they fought each other. Uh, as I got older and, and managed to, to, to squeak out a few friends... Um, I would organize a, a playtime with them, um, and and we were we would be the Rex Gang, a a group of, of uh, uh, kids who were actually dinosaurs, and um, and and we our mission was to find others like us because we were abandoned on this planet during a a UFO crash. You know, I'm I'm like five six years old, and and this is happening. Right. So this would play out uh, across the neighborhood. So the mixture of science fiction or fantasy and the urban settings and, and the, the actual squalor and danger of, of the neighborhood would intermix. And, um, uh, and, and that was my reality, a reality actually uh, inspired by Sesame Street, because there was that kind of rundown neighborhood and this brilliant fantasy <laughs> That was occurring there, so I role played for many years, playing make believe, right, and and ultimately that um, that kind of had to die down, a uh, Colin, because uh, childish things were were you know a little too mocked. <laughs> um, that led me to um, uh, discovering. Uh, uh, fantasy role-playing games uh, during my first year at Stuyvesant High School. So already I was in, in high school. It was, uh, I was the class of 80 uh, uh, coming in, uh, uh, you know, so in, in 1980 was was the um, uh, the, the first time uh, I was I was there and, and um, uh, no 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 uh, it, it was it was actually the late 70s so Star Wars was still a big thing and these, the, the Dungeons & Dragons early editions were, were being used at, at Stives And I would sit down and, and go, well, what are you doing? What, what is that? The little miniatures on the tables and, and so forth. And um, they, the total opposite of, of, uh, it, you know, of what I experienced back in the old uh, neighborhood was happening there. They were so elite. They would not teach me how to play the game. You know, they're like, "Well, if you don't know how to play, I, I can't be bothered to teach you." So I, I went out to a, a bookstore and bought the Blue Basic Edition of Dungeons and Dragons uh, in uh, in nineteen seventy eight, early seventy nine, and and started to teach myself how to play the, the game. No, nice. alone. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. That like like a lot of those early modules um you read through them and the world starts to expand even as you're reading in it and you're and you're already halfway there right that's the um it's really interesting hearing you say this and there's something that it's it's a theme that repeats itself over and over again when we have these conversations with really interesting creators there's always a sense of outsiderness and there's always something where whatever it is whatever the temple is whatever the existing structure is one way or another it 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 shows you a locked door, and you've got to go off and figure something out out for yourself, and and this whole thing of I'm not just going to receive content, as it were, I'm going to one way or another start to generate things and share things. That seems to me so fundamental on this journey that a lot of us find ourselves on.
1: Uh, uh, Colin, it was incredibly lonely. Y- you know, um, it, it yeah. had been lonely. Uh, my ability to play make-believe were with friends who had faded behind me because um, uh, my mom was eager to, to, to get out of poverty and get us into you know, a somewhat better uh, neighborhood and so forth. So I was very much the outsider uh, at that time. Um, and um, and um, I, it, sometimes it, it seems to me that the distinction between artists who become successful and and uh, people just with brilliant imaginations who who stay in at home and or in their basements and, and so forth, it is this yearning uh, for social contact, um, uh, okay. and the and and the desire to do anything to to make that contact and and find community, and um, and you know back in the uh, you know 70s 80s even the 90s. Um, those communities didn't exist in any kind of way that was readily and easily contactable, right? There was no internet. There was no way to to foster nerd community. Um, uh, so you just had to hope you'd run across somebody. <laughs> for for me, it was um, heavy metal dudes uh, in in high school. Uh, they, they were, um, you know, they were. Kind of not a part of the rest of the crowd at the time. They were into Led Zeppelin and Ronnie James Dio and 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 Rush and so forth, and and the covers of those record albums was the bridge that I used to to lure them into playing uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons with me.
0: Nice, that's a really interesting point you say, and that and that's certainly something that I remember as well. Um, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but growing up in New Zealand in the 1980s, um, you were very aware that this was Tatooine. This was this was a very very long way away from everything that was happening, and um, there was this vast imaginary place called America. Hmm. And I th- I think every single person in America basically knew each other and was in a really cool room where everybody met. This is this is the view from New Zealand, um, and the same with Britain. There was there was basically one. L- large waiting room near a train station in Britain, and that's where Rowan Atkinson and Rick Mayall <laughs> and everyone who was anyone in, in in Britain was. But here in New Zealand, you're just in this kind of place that, that doesn't have a lot. And one thing that I think is a is a foundational shift from then till now, any individual bit of art or a book cover or a single thing you could get your hands on, you fetishized because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have 10,000 things. Um, there, for me there was the essential randomness of the secondhand bookstore. You went into the second hand bookstore I know it well. and maybe that week someone had dropped off one thing mm-hmm. and it was some random fantasy book that had a single cover and maybe there's a guy on a cover with a gun or there's a beautiful alien landscape and you go home and you imagine that landscape for a week. And that was this very intensive approach
1: rather than the extensive thing that the internet really did. Absolutely a hundred percent. I would go to uh, a, a, a bookstore, an old dusty bookstore on Roosevelt Avenue in Flushing, Queens, and rummaged through it once a week, searching, searching, and searching for uh, a new content, new a, a new magazine, a new back issue that I had missed or, or something like that, and um, and that there was. Um, you know, there was suspense in that search. There was—it was an emotional journey as well, because you didn't know what what you'd come out with, or whether you could even afford what you know what popped up. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know that feeling well. And there's no active search, right?
0: This is this is the thing where um, a really good search engine will presumably take you to the bit of information that you've asked it for very quickly. But a secondhand bookstore, you physically navigate an environment where. Really unexpected things are going to happen. You don't know what books, what possibilities are, are in this place. Um, there's a there's a huge amount uh, amount of really happenstance. Um, one other thing that that I was hearing you say uh, um, this this transition somehow, if it is a transition from um, being wildly imaginative as a child and essentially moving through these worlds where you're constantly inventing rules, playing roles, doing things. Um, And then later on um i think one thing that happens to a lot of people especially as they become teenagers is we start to one way or another find ourselves adrift and very often we don't necessarily intersect well with the structures around us Um, that's kind of what being a teenager is Um, and something that i've always found fascinating about the original dungeon dragons is it really does tie it down to very key mechanics if you want to swing a sword you throw a die if you want to know if you are smart enough to figure out that puzzle, in some cases you also roll the die. And I was wondering, for you especially, is there a... Um, um, do those kind of mechanics become important
1: as you start to navigate the the wilds of being a teenager? That's really interesting. It's a, it's a fantastic question. And, and the answer, um, uh, and I'm going to be candid here, was that uh, um, uh, it, it was, it, the, the mechanics were, were necessary in order to assert uh, some kind of control over my players. Uh, in, in other words, I'd have rather not used a rule system. Um, I'd have rather play acted the entire thing as if I was a little kid running around in the streets of, of the city. Um, but, um, but I found when, when I didn't assert the rule system that was furnished to me by TSR, <laughs> um, uh, y- you know, my my players would a- a- assert as much power and authority and um, and and will over anything and everything that happened, that it was impossible to move forward. There were no limitations uh, uh, on them, and and so uh, it became problematic. So the the rules were the the whip, <laughs> you know, the Roberts rules of order in order for the, uh, the narrative to be able to proceed and make sense uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, it, it did, to, 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 just to jump on the other side of that point, um, I, I, I did start to understand that, that those rules were a grammar. Um, uh, for the construction of narrative uh, just the same way grammar is for writing a book you know. and, and so uh, ultimately I came to, to understand and appreciate uh, the rules systems they, they, they evolved over the course of some years and, and, and became a bit more video game like and, and I, I didn't like them quite as much um, it's an interesting point you say
0: that later on for a while at least i think dungeon dragons evolved to trying to be a pen and paper version of world of warcraft but world of warcraft is really good at being world of warcraft why would you try and replicate a video yeah. um and just hearing you say that it's, it's like i always remember the old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon about kelvin ball which is essentially a completely anarchic game where you constantly change the rules as you feel and Calvin Ball. I think in the comics and when people have tried it in real life, it's enormously fun for about half an hour. And then you realize that if we can change the rules all the time however we want, there's actually no real structural flow or purpose to what we're doing. And somewhere in there, you actually do go, okay, I may have strongly resisted rolling that dice to swing that sword, but I kind of would like a die roll right now of some kind, even e- even if I dislike the mechanics. 100%. That tension is fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, um, and of course, after a while, you became involved in in a deeply mechanical um, universe, which was Magic the Gathering, which I find fascinating because that was absolutely epochal to people around me when I was a teenager.
1: Sure, um, the um, uh, the 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 gaming. Um one thing my my little group of gamers uh, found out we 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 uh, we I moved my game onto the Queen's college campus <clears throat> and and my game became very, very popular. There were times where there were fifteen or twenty people in in the same conference room either playing or watching the game uh, be played. Um, I, I was sometimes accused of a little emotional manipulation because because I, <laughs> I, I, um, uh, I was so intent on, on uh, getting my players involved in the narrative, I would tap into their real world personalities, the players' personalities, the players' wishes and desires and, and so forth, and, and mix them into the motivations of the characters and the goals of the characters. and um, uh, That inspired incredible loyalty among the people who were playing the game but other people who were observing this said well what are you doing you're it's like an emotional head game that's going on in in, in here and so forth and well you know i mean uh it, it's a medium unto its own it, it's fascinating to me
0: um the i was gonna say what is storytelling especially story making if not exactly that uh,
1: essentially benevolent um emotional manipulation there you go yeah. exactly exactly sometimes it was a little t- tough to take my own personal feelings uh, out of it but um, it it, um, it generally worked. Um, uh, we discovered that um, that this emphasis on role play uh, and storytelling, communal storytelling, was actually relatively rare in in the hobby. Uh, m- most of the uh, hobbyists took the the kind of Gary Gygax, the creator of, of Dungeons and Dragons. His approach was more about miniatures and, and strategies and, and, and things like that, the medieval uh, a component, the wargaming component. And, um, and so um, uh, we, being our, our creative selves, started to write about um, uh, you know, the benefits to role play. We were advocates of the game uh, and, and, and the role play aspect of the game. So um, uh, we published this in a newsletter uh, that wound up becoming a magazine. Um, and, and so uh, for a few years, uh, I was the publisher of Gateways magazine, a desktop published uh, a thing that started out as a newsletter and wound up getting national distribution to bookstores and comic shops and, and things like that. Um, uh, so the, um, in doing so, we got to meet all of our heroes in the industry and and uh, uh, one of them was uh, 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 Richard Garfield, uh, and um, and he was building a game uh, called Magic: The Gathering that that was just starting to come out and, and catch on. While I was at uh, years later at Valiant Comics, and um, and I uh, became an advocate for the company to. Um, uh, uh, license the, the game so that we could create comic books and video games based on the Magic the Gathering uh, trading card game. Um, the, the trick with that, uh, everybody agreed that that's a great idea and, and they knew me so they trusted that I, I understood the game uh, mechanics and, and, and so forth. And, um, but they said there was no real intellectual property that could tie all those cards together. Um, and what um, what I did was I said well I, I, I can do that you know just give me a month <laughs> and and out of desperation I dug up my my Dungeons and dragons campaign uh, uh, Corindor which became uh, a central uh, continent on the world of Dominaria uh, where we we then uh, tied all the characters in and created this epic uh, storyline
0: nice and the, and that idea of um, um, what we're hearing already, I think, is is this ongoing sense of, it feels like you're an instigator, Jeff. It feels like you get into things, you want to make connections, and you'll bring things from outside what's obvious and kind of mash it together in, in search of a solution. And this is something that, again, I think you see over and over again with people who, I, as you say, are not just kind of often in a vacuum creating things, but are actually sparking collective movements of some kind. Um, on a day-to-day basis, when when you're getting into one of these companies or you're trying to make one of these things happen, what is happening there? What's the difference between that and just I have an idea and I'm going to write it down and I'm going to be creative?
1: Oh, um, it, it, it's a big difference there, Colin. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's you know it's a big difference. the uh, the the notions. Uh, I, for a good portion of my life, maybe it hasn't stopped, um, I would want to do things that, um, that, that didn't really exist in any kind of common way. So it wasn't simply that I was advocating for the licensing of magic to do comic books. Um, it, it was licensing magic so that I could help the company Build a universe uh, out out of the out of the cards, and somehow have it have some kind of continuity and depth and richness. This is the early nineteen nineties. That stuff was not common. That thinking wasn't common. Licensing was about exploiting an intellectual property as much as you can, as fast as you can, and then throwing it away to go on to a different license. So so um, the the notion that the story. Uh, It was inclusive of the cards, of the comic books, and then a different aspect of the story would be told uh, in the video games, and then the lore would be listed on a website, and, and, um, and that the ongoing voice and feedback of thousands and thousands of players would be considered by myself and, and uh, integrated in terms of their desires of, uh, about the world into the, the, the creative itself, it just was unheard of and, and, and not supported at all. You know, the answer was no. If I had proposed everything that I just told you uh, to the powers that be, the, the, they would say, I don't even understand what you're talking about. You know, n- no. <laughs> um, and, and so no was a word that I heard all my life frankly
0: because there's always well there, there there was always there was always the, the the real thing which I think was very often a movie and then there was all of the essentially spin-offs derivatives ancillaries all that stuff and that stuff was really just next to the t-shirts right that's right you had your real movie and then you had all of your essentially merchandise which might include books and other stuff but that stuff is kind of one layer down if not further there's that hierarchy and The thing that I get from reading a lot of your work and from the the things that transmedia is evolving towards is that it's a network rather than a hierarchy.
1: Correct. It's a system um, uh, rather than than the repetition of a single linear narrative. That's what licensing was all about. We're going to tell this same story over and over and over again as much as we can until you're sick of it and move on. And I've seen you have
0: um, some, some extremely entertainingly strong opinions about the current attempts by large corporations to shape those narratives in useful ways or or not useful ways, which, which um, we will have Jeff's LinkedIn um, at, at the end of the podcast, but is highly entertaining and informative at, at, at the very least.
1: It appalls me, Colin, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that lessons have still not been learned. <laughs> um and this this
0: brings me really nicely to the thing that i've probably most enjoyed about the work that i see you do um in the storytelling context which is this really fundamental shift that you argue for from um broadly speaking a kind of hero's journey narrative structure which is um, strongly individualistic i i am a young person with unproven potential i gain a mentor i go on a quest i conquer some kind of evil and then we're kind of done Um, except until next time and this idea of saying actually what what if there's a much more ecological base to the stories that we make together where there is a collective journey that we and our environment go through and this is not a story of a singular person's growth and then ascension it's something much more than that which i think reflects very strongly
1: the world that we are collectively shaping and destroying at, at the moment, a hundred percent, Colin. Um, yes, I, you know th- these notions uh, started with me um, from when I was uh, very young. When when um, uh, when you're introduced to <clears throat> to to violence, uh, perhaps before you even can read very well. <laughs> That's how young. Um, you, you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of violence. So, so there's, um, there's a choice that's made, I think, in a lot of people. And that is, well, <clears throat> that's life. And so um, uh, not only will I uh, receive violence and perhaps dish out some violence, um, I, I, I will certainly uh, tolerate it and advocate its applications in the entertainment that I encounter and so forth Um, and and that could be as mild as as sports violence or as you know uh, wild as as horror movie uh, uh, violence and and so forth Um, uh, the other alternative is gee you know I know what it's like to be struck Um, is there any other way uh, for 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 these characters to behave where we don't have to go there where, you know, it doesn't have to come down to this. And and so um, uh, this really hit home for me in the late 1970s uh, following Frodo uh, through uh, The Lord of the Rings. You know, here was a character who could never have anticipated the horrors that he was going to encounter, who was a truly, genuinely good person. Who, who naively volunteered to, to take this burden um, and, and walk across an entire land uh, to, to dispatch it. And, um, and he experiences a, a terrific violence. Uh, you know, uh, he'll never be the same, right? Uh, spoilers. <laughs> um, and, and, um, uh, and, and I thought to myself, the, the, this, this writing is so beautiful. this this narrative is is breathtaking. The work that went into it, could have there been another way? Uh, uh, You know, um, is there some negotiation that can happen between the forces of light and darkness? (laughs) Um, You know, in that particular case, well, it would have subverted the message that Tolkien was trying to deliver, so probably not. But, um, you know, uh, I started to toy with the notion of of what is the drama in attempting to repair a, a system, as opposed to uh, uh, turning the system into a binary and having that binary smash itself into itself, uh, and um, until somebody was the victor, you know. Um, uh, the 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 duel between good and evil was alluring to me as a child, but it, as I began got older and 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 started to work through the traumas of of my childhood and and the problems that I'd encountered as as a person uh, psychologically, um, I, I started to think about what the dynamics can be. How how fascinating can you make a story where uh, uh you know everybody's effort is in you know trying to repair the system as opposed to uh, committing acts of violence against each other and and so the, the that was the origin of this notion of collective journey modality
0: nice and and if we start tying that to some specific examples um one of the things that i always remember is my various encounters when I was a kid with the stories of King Arthur and the Round Table, um, because those were some of the picture books that were around when I was very young. And, and early on, um, my, my encounter with those was, there's a really big table, and there's a bunch of really cool people, the knights who sit around mm-hmm. it, and they're all awesome, and they're wealthy, and they're doing well, and they're sitting in Camelot. And every once in a while, one of them basically goes out on his horse and goes out on a quest, and the quest usually involves slaying something bad and gaining some treasure and or a fair maiden right and that was kind of and 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 those were really cool when i was a kid i i, I love that stuff there is a a base level love of those things even now but then later on looking at things like T.S. it's the wasteland and various approaches to that Arthurian um pla- place there's also that inherent sense in it of actually the entire land is sick and the 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 king is often tied to this. This is this is old kind of golden bow JG Fraser territory. Sure, sure. But one way or another, um, yes, there's a um, glorious Kennedy-like hierarchy of knights who go out and hit things. But beneath this, there's a real sense of an ecology that is struggling and um, very sick, diseased, trying to overcome itself. And somewhere through that, there's actually people who are trying to shift that ecology back towards a healthy land, a healthy kingdom. Yes. Um, that's my specific example. I'd, I'd love to hear from you some specific ways and, and places that you see this playing out
1: in various stories. Uh, well, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, it's it, what's funny is that um, the, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey uh, became, uh, much more overt and and obvious uh, to the entertainment industry um, uh, around 1980, when when Bill Moyers interviewed uh, George Lucas about *The Empire Strikes Back* and about the uh, the mythology of *Star Wars* and, and its origins in uh, uh, Campbellian uh, hero's journey, and um, uh, and, and uh, the the richness that you just described uh, uh, it, it, with uh, the Arthurian cycle uh, it, it, it's it's funny because what you describe is the least aspect of what it is that we see in movies about the Arthurian uh, 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 tradition right um, uh, the, this this richness and sophistication and and um, uh, uh, the, the the many many layers of that epic are not touched upon because uh, you, you've got two hours, and you're falling back on uh, on on the skeleton of the hero's journey, um, and and pushing us through as quickly as possible to get to the good parts, right? The parts where people are hitting each other. <laughs> um, so you know, um, uh, I I became disenchanted with um, uh, Hollywood's reliance on that, and um, uh, and then. When um, when I first uh, looked at the potential of social media and, and how um, uh, we can uh, all have a voice and have that voice trigger something like the Arab Spring, you know, in the Middle East and North Africa, um, I, I thought, wow, this is you, know, this is collective uh, narrative. This is uh, a, a narrative that coalesces and murmurates like a flock of birds making patterns in the sky right and um, uh, and can yield incredible uh, progressive and positive things in the world and um and uh, you know um uh, and at the same time you have these new global television networks streamers uh, that that need to create content that's going to be appealing to a, a global audience. So it's no longer that Hollywood simply is asserting its sense of right and wrong; it's its particular interpretation of the hero's journey cycle. We now have to be more sensitive to um, uh, different perspectives. So, so you have to be careful about what you're declaring to be wrong, right? You, you have to, uh, you know. You have to be sensitive to the the interpretations of different cultures to the events of your narrative. And and so you have to be um, a a better storyteller (laughs) in some senses. You have to look at your story world as a system that is flawed and um, uh, to repair that system. All of these different factions, some of whom are are violently at odds. Need to reconcile in some way, or that flaw will continue to grow, and ultimately it's it's uh, self-terminating. Right, the system could collapse if you let certain flaws run too long, um, and um, and y- you know you start to see this in uh, uh, current popular entertainment. The uh, uh, Orange is the New Black. To a degree, even Game of Thrones, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, uh, Tolkien's process and, and turning it into this rich, complex, systemic uh, uh, problem where winter is coming. And it doesn't matter whether you're good, bad or indifferent, you know, the world's going to end, um, uh, you know, is uh, and, and they had to reconcile in order to solve that problem to a degree, at least, is fascinating to me. And um, uh, and is is a model I think that is uh, gaining momentum.
0: Nice. I just as you're saying, I um, um, I think of the Wire, the TV oh, show, sure. which
1: is really a systemic
0: look at all of Baltimore from every perspective, rather than just here are the cops, here are the robbers. I Brilliant
1: uh, and ingenious uh, uh, approach to uh, you know collective journey narrative. Yes.
0: Um, if I'm if I'm playing devil's advocate just for a moment mm-hmm. there. Um, because this stuff absolutely fascinates me. In that kind of systemic approach, where there isn't necessarily a kind of light and dark, a Darth Vader and a Luke Skywalker, um, do you end up with effectively amoral
1: narratives? Oh gosh, no. Um, I mean, it, you could because storytelling, storytelling, and any model can be used to do most anything. But look at the conundrum that that the Walt Disney Company is is facing with Star Wars. Um, you know. It, it, it sure was effective for you know three movies, maybe slightly less effective for another three and it started really to disintegrate as they ran out of ideas and and out of ways to repeat the same story, the same clash between uh, a good and evil um, in in those final three uh, uh, films, the Disney films and um, and now, uh, you can see how they're grappling with what to do uh, in, in the wake of of, uh, of, of all that, and um, uh, their their temptation because it has sold a lot of toys is to continue the clash between Jedi and Sith. But the smart move, the move that that actually has been more successful for them, is to explore other aspects of. Uh, this this uh, galaxy, which is a flawed system, uh, such as with the Mandalorian, um, you know, by far the most successful, uh, you know, post uh, uh, a Star Wars piece of, of property. So, um, uh, you, you know, you you cannot uh, fight Darth Vader forever. You know, it's boring. You know, it, and 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 in doing so, you are diminishing an iconic uh, a character. If you don't uh, very carefully think it through, I, th- I thought they did some clever things with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, but um, uh, but it's something to proceed uh, with uh, with with tremendous caution. Uh, and no, The Mandalorian is not amoral. The Mandalorian is exploring morality in the Star Wars universe, and I think yeah. that's fascinating. Um, uh, y- you know, um, y- you can do actually. I feel so much more. When you um, uh, you know stop chiseling your morality into uh, into stone, and say, well, there are the ten rules of the Jedi, and and um, and, and stick to it, life or death, and and uh, and then wind up just repeating yourself. Nice, I
0: think for me at least, especially the first season of The Mandalorian, um, one of the senses was this kind of enormous relief of. Um, here almost moment by moment is a person on on a journey largely of discovery and i don't feel like the entire universe of backstory is weighing me down i can just concentrate moment by moment on the story is being made right in front of me and i think especially with i i think with some of the comic worlds i think with star wars especially you do have that sense of um especially in the 90s for instance where if you hadn't read the last 45 issues why would you read the 46th and I think that, that that became a pretty clear business problem at, at times, right? Uh,
1: absolutely. We've always been advocates for uh, uh, bits and pieces of your transmedia to still make sense <laughs> if if yeah, they sure. um, if they're presented uh, uh, by themselves. Uh, that's a problem that uh, Kevin Feige is experiencing with his Marvel movies. Uh, uh, some of them are, are bogged down in, in an enormous amount of lore. Uh, the the Doctor Strange uh, and the Multiverse of madness. Um, and and um, you know, there there are people who go to that that stuff and just enjoy the pretty colors because they have no clue what's happening because they haven't seen stuff before it or after it. And um, and I suppose that's fine. Um, if you do that a little too much, you're going to uh, start to lose your your audience uh, or or your audience yeah, will I'm become sure. rarefied. And so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marvel has to be careful. And if we're talking here about this this thing, which I think
0: um, um, this will be a slight left left curve in the conversation, mm. but it's very much where I want to get to. That sense of even even if all of that law and that and that deeply rich universe is out there, um, as I encounter the universe, I don't get it all thrown at me at once. And and really, to some extent, and this is what video games, especially role playing games, can do really well. To some extent. What I am trying to do is make my own story within this world, within these places. Something like Skyrim is the perfect example. If you want to be a Skyrim lore nerd, you can go acres deep, or you can just form your character and start exploring this world by yourself. Um, to me, when I, um, when I listen to stuff about the collective journey and what you're saying it always comes back to, okay, what are we as human beings doing in the real world with this kind of active communal story making where we're shaping the world around us? And to me that comes right back to at some point you do have to mythologize yourself and see yourself as on some form of journey, whatever form that takes. For me, um, especially the last few years, it's been really coming to terms with the fact that I'm actually really an outsider. Mm. Um, I've known this since I was three, but not, not really going, Oh, what does it actually mean to be an outsider when you go into certain circumstances? What's the positive role that you can play in that tradition? Um, and that's something that I work to make sense of, but for, for you as this person helping shape these stories and living your life, do you have a sense of yourself as being on one of these journeys?
1: Well, uh, absolutely. And, and, and naturally, um, uh, but Colin, uh, I want to address that issue uh, of, of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of personal discovery and what one um, uh, comes up with and, and, and sort of concludes because, um, uh, you know, uh, for, for me, it is, it is vital uh, to, to stay in touch with my audience. I'm getting older. My audience uh, is, is young, <laughs> a lot of them. And, um, uh, and they don't see things the way we do. And, and so it, yep. it's, it's super important uh, to, to understand the distinction and to understand the fact that we don't have to define ourselves uh, in, in such stringent fashions. Yep. So uh, when I ask a young person, uh, like a college kid, you know, wow, you're into fantasy. You know, the, the first instinct would be, what happened to you? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with you that, that you're, you know, because obviously outsiders are nerds and, and, and into genre and, and sure. stuff like that. Nope, <laughs> not anymore. You, you know, um, anybody, yeah. uh, we, we live in a world that is flooded with fantasy. And and so, yeah. from from youth, uh, kids are growing, grew up on Harry Potter and um, and you know Zelda video games and and and, uh, and just tons and tons of, of fantasy content, and so a lot of them don't see themselves as, as outsiders, you, you know. No, the reverse. I
0: I I I'd, I'd, I'd actually absolutely agree. You see this really strongly in video games where. Um, for a very long time the stereotype of video games is obviously that it was played by teenage boys and the the stats and the facts and just the lived reality of who plays video games is um, um, a really large majority of everyone below about 45. There you go. And the industry shift around that has has been absolutely transformative. No, I, I, I absolutely hear you and, and especially um, one of the um, possibly the advantages of New Zealand is New Zealand tends to be a little less tribal around those things you're talking right. about. Um, um, so when I was growing up, it, it wasn't so much that being involved in fighting fantasy or Dungeons and Dragons made you a nerd, um, although that's, that that was an element. Um, when I talk about myself being an outsider, it's a, it's a more fundamental thing of my experience of the world. Mm. And um, if I... If I were to be medicalized at this point, um, they, would, they would probably place me somewhere on some form of spectrum. But all I remember from being very young was um, the, the absolutely intense stream of sensations coming at me from the world, feeling like they were slightly off angle, like a, um, like a cheese grater, and having to adjust to um, normal interactions and always feeling like there's one layer of, how am I supposed to act in this situation, which, which I think is a very familiar feeling to many, um, but um, really understanding that to some extent that that feeling will always be there, but we can make use of it and we can come into situations and go, ah, here's an angle that maybe the other people in the room aren't looking at. It's that type of thing. Rather than, as you said, I, I very much take the point that um, now, um, people grow up in, in, in an incredibly rich world full of wonderful stories, and there's no longer as much of the labeling that used to take place when we were younger, I think.
1: Uh, well, th- that is a distinction. Um, uh, so, so point number one was, yeah, y- you know, uh, it, 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 nerdism is, is no longer nearly as stigmatized as, as it used to be. Um, and and the corollary to that by the way was was that artistic expression creative expression uh, and this is something I have to remind myself of all the time uh, no longer needs to be directly affiliated with pain trauma or or all these terrible things I'm an artist you you know um, (laughs) the Garrett uh, that needs uh, you know the act of writing must be anguish in order for me to do something good and and all that sort of thing out the window you you know uh, uh, there there are artists uh, that you can track through all of history who have done magnificent works? Who were, you know, the equivalent of middle class or upper class people who did fine and and uh, you know didn't have a horrible, violent, traumatic, or, or impoverished upbringings and did fine. But also very poor uh, 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 artists and and writers who, who um, you know, struggled their way up and 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 did wonderful things without necessarily have to, having to you know wind up like kurt cobain or you know all that sort of thing so there's there's that now your your um your cheese grater uh thing now that i empathize with that i understand um it's it's so funny colin i have talked to a lot of people who would be categorized as as neurodiverse (laughs) um and um a, a lot of them um it's funny, use these analogies uh, where, where things become uh, uh, fragmented in some way or divvied up in, in some way that allows for them to be uh, subjected to a kind of observation or, or analysis that's highly unusual. So I'm going to share a, a term that I use for that thing, <clears throat> that thing, um, tessellation. Tessellation. Ah, cool. You and I, Colin, we tessellate. <laughs> um, so nice. what is what I like is it. that? That's um, uh, it, it's it's hard to describe. Except that when we enter into an environment, anything that's that's surrounding us suddenly um, uh, gets gets uh, uh, segmented into a massive grid, and that grid can be, you know, a dozen, a hundred, a million different little tiles, and, and somehow in our minds we are observing those tiles not as if we are leaning back and looking at a screen, but as if somehow we are everywhere <laughs> in that uh, environment and looking at it from a million different perspectives. Yes. And, uh, and it is feeding data in, into our imaginations that cause us to come up with observations that are bizarre, <laughs> um, uh, uh, truly, truly uh, un, unusual. And, um, and it makes us think about the world in different ways. And, and if, if we're young and naive and we start to comment on it, we are seen as outsiders, uh, because those (laughs) observations are weird. Uh, uh, They are unusual. Um, uh, This is something that I really uh, uh, grappled with when when I was younger. Um, And um, uh, it it was a gift because uh, uh, it it allowed me uh, to escape into a world of imagination and amuse myself. Um, uh, But it also you know um, made me disconnected from from people um, and um, and so my social life suffered you know there would be exceptions uh, and wonderful friends w- would somehow navigate through all that and and, um, and come to know and, and love me but for the most part um, it, it made you know um, uh, lasting bonds uh, difficult to achieve John this
0: is really interesting, and, and um, first off, thank you. And, and also, even just as a way of expressing it, the, there's a fundamental geometry to the way you're talking, which um, is really interesting, this, this spatial idea around how we think. And one of the things, I think we talked about this in our pre-chat before we did this podcast, um, I think of things, especially like madness in the medieval sense, as literal territory, that we move through in journey. I mean, the literal expression is we go mad, but this idea of these increasingly strange ecologies and places and geometries that one way or another we are moving through. And the nature of that journey is what fascinates me because as far as I can tell, this is the journey that um, most of us go on one way or another at some point in our lives. Um, I think we've both like, I, I think we've both talked about knowing from quite an early age that something is different, something is a little cheese gratery, and basically learning to navigate that. I've also known people who, at the age of forty-five, have had some crisis in their life, and for the first time, they've really had to confront: How do I journey through this territory? Yes. Yes. And um, in very different environments, I, I work w- with a lot of startup founders, and the absolute joining factor from all of the successful ones is that there are people who are in these liminal states in terms of how they see the world and that they've, they've just figured out how to kind of skate the curve where they can make a business work while essentially going mad. And I mean that in the very real sense. And the ones that don't succeed either are not in that space to start with or they just go off the rails like so many artists used Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. So there's this sense one way or another, everyone to me at some point navigates this territory and some of us are born with certain tools that are better or worse for it, but it's a journey that we all go on. So, what I'd love to talk about for the next while, if you don't mind, literally um, the 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 collective journey through madness wow. and how we might serve as guides or shamans or little wayfinders
1: for this. Uh, I can't think of a better thing to to talk about, Colin. You're you're absolutely right. Um, and it's funny, my name for for those uncharted territories that 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 um, that that void (laughs) um where where um lovecraftian beasts uh, are are uh, you know hiding in the shadows um is the liminal space um uh, that's that's been a term i've used for for uh, many years um you know i first experienced it um you know uh in situations where there was prolonged trauma uh, of violence uh, and, and so forth. You have to go somewhere. You can't be there, right? And and um, and so that that void um, uh, was was where I would go. It wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't um, you know uh, laying back and thinking of England. <laughs> it, it was it was uh, you know a vast darkness um, where I could not be reached. Um, uh, the, the problem was that not long after that, I found myself slipping into it a little too often, uh, uh, in some cases on an involuntary basis. And, um, and it's, it was scary, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy. And, um, uh, you know, now, today, I look at the wake of the uh, pandemic and what it has done, particularly to young people around the world and um and I see far too many people uh slipping into those liminal spaces Um, and there's a danger because um you know if you don't know what to do there (laughs) if you don't know how to handle it if you can't navigate yourself through that darkness if you can't realize that that darkness holds anything and everything you could possibly need in order to succeed uh, and that's the way I interpret that, because the liminal space is where imagination uh, manifests and can be turned into reality. Um, if you don't understand that, you could really start to, to suffer. You could self-medicate. Yeah. You can uh, yeah. self-harm, and um, uh, that's dreadful. And I, uh, I, I very much would love to, uh, to, and 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 in some small ways, I'm, I'm taking some action on that. Uh, but yes there there needs to be a, a kind of a, a collective ac- acknowledgement of that that crisis and um, and uh, a means to address it
0: and what do you at, at this stage what do you think that starts to look like well I mean, um, one of the things that's happened in New Zealand I think it's happened everywhere is certainly even from fifteen years ago um, the overall discussion about what gets called mental health has has progressed. It's 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 more forward. Even even men are occasionally talking about mental health, which is just remarkable, Jeff. It's just just incredible. Um, even rugby players in New Zealand are occasionally acknowledging that that things might not be all all okay. I know some tough Māori um,
1: boys who uh, <laughs> would would have been resistant to that some years ago.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So 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 there's that side, but that, but but that to me um, in in the very best way, and 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 I think that conversation is necessary. It sometimes medicalizes things in a way that is part of of what we're talking about but not all of it um what what does a a better collective journey look like and feel like to you
1: with regard to this particular issue um uh you know uh, i think a lot of people say oh my gosh storytelling has has uh, become woke so to speak meaning uh, uh, almost hypersensitive to issues surrounding diversity and um, uh, representation and, and yet we have not uh, scratched the surface for um, uh, you know how one deals with um, uh, issues concerning neurodiversity and um, and this um, uh, these feelings of of um, uh, you know, dissociation, and um, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting lost in the liminal space, so to speak. Um, uh, we we need stories, um, not just not just medicine, and not just uh, counseling. Those things are wonderful, um, but they're, they're they still, I believe, will only reach a rarefied uh, a number of people. I want to see. Um, uh, you know, way not just uh, a a a movie about uh, someone who uh, exhibits uh, the symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder and then has them treated, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, what is the subjective experience of this, and and what path can one take to not just drug oneself. Uh, uh, to, to reduce the symptoms but to actually understand what gifts lie in this and, and, and how one can navigate one's life in ways that can leverage tessellation <laughs> um, and uh, I'm the poster child for leveraging tessellation <laughs> you know um, it, it can and does work so, so um, you know it, it's not just enough to point it out I want to know what those journeys are like that's a whole almost like a genre that has not been explored yet Uh, you know I'm, I'm tired of tragedies about it you, you know uh, the bell jar and, uh, yeah. I never promised you a rose garden and all <laughs> sort of I'm dating myself but um, you know we we need to to uh, to understand this better and tell great stories about it
0: no that's fantastic and it's really interesting to say um, one of the things that um, basically we've been working on for a while here is this idea of a setting that that looks like folk horror so so it starts out looking like the wicker man in new zealand but um at, sort of out the other side of it alongside people's experience of extremely difficult emotional states one thing that almost never happens in a horror is you never see the art and the beauty and the connection and the the other side of the mountain um, um one of the reasons that i like the wicker man as a film aside yes. from being a very good film is there's actually a whole lot of joy and fun and color and and life in that film. It's not just a miserable film about a miserable guy who goes through a miserable island and then dies. There, there's there's an incredible up and down. And, and um, also, speaking of which, The Wicker Man is about essentially collectively trying to heal the land by, um, um, I think, questionable methods. <laughs> but you, you see that sense in there of um, you can build things where what is the purpose of horror in some ways that you come through it and you develop the tools that you can then create beautiful connective wonderful things with and we don't necessarily see enough of that as well and that's one thing that we've been working on quite a bit because that really fascinates me um I, I i very much respect and enjoy the idea of horror as essentially a descent yes um, and of course lovecraft to some extent i mean the classic end of a lovecraft story is that the main character basically sees the nature of reality and goes crazy um okay fair what happens next what 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 do they gain or bring back or or create out of that journey other than just i saw the face of the tulu therefore i am mad um that's not the end point to me to me, to me that's the midpoint that's right. and that's really interesting to me um, um and speaking of new zealand as a um a place where people, I think, literally and historically have come to go mad. We're we're a very unusual um, place, as you know, because you spent time (laughs) here. Um, When we were talking beforehand, you talked about an experience in a cave system in New Zealand that sounded like very much what we're talking about to some extent. Oh, gosh,
1: yes. uh, I, I I recall them as as Nikau, n- near uh, Auckland. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. the system. Um, uh, well, I mean, f- first of all, uh, my time in New Zealand um, was was truly life changing. It, it was um, one of the most uh, breathtaking uh, periods in my life. Uh, I was called to uh, New Zealand um, by Unitech uh, uh, University and uh, and some people there who felt that it was important to teach young New Zealanders um, uh, about the future of storytelling and, and transmedia and, and so forth. This was um, uh, near about uh, 10 years ago and and um, uh, I, I, I took my family there, uh, my wife and my, my little girl, um, uh, who was like you know seven or eight years old at the time, and and we um, um we 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 had a, a, a terrific time. The my talk was held in a marae on on the Unitec nice. uh, uh, campus. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was called Te Noho Kautahitanga Marae. <laughs> um, and um, and it was a tremendous honor. There was a haka that was uh, uh, delivered nice. for me. They they called me um, uh, uh, the the uh, the storyteller out of the silver mist. <laughs> they, that was the translation of, of the, the name they gave to me. And um, nice. Uh, and uh, it, it was it was terrific. The. Um, um, this was at a time where I was traveling around the world to talk about uh, transmedia storytelling. Uh, uh, the word of mouth spread and I was the guy. So um, I was coming to realize the, the power uh, and effect that my words were having on people, you know, beyond publishing a comic book or, or even a, a video game. Um, you know, some people were sitting in that audience who went on to uh, you know, careers, they, their lives, you know, were, were impacted by my words, and um, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, in in one way, I was still that that kid who was tessellating, <laughs> you know, who who was grappling with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, who was, was kind of singing my own lonely song <laughs> as I traveled the world. And, and in another uh, uh, sense, I was being uh, uh, treated with tremendous respect and honor. And, um, and I was being listened to. It was beyond what I could uh, uh, imagine. Um, uh, so these conflicting feelings were, were in me when um, uh, my wife and daughter went with me to go see the glow worms uh, in in the Nikau Cave. And um, uh, uh, in New Zealand, sometimes it seems to me that there is a difference between the way that something is described to you (laughs) and the actual experience that you're going to uh, move into. (laughs) <laughs> before the Indeed. before the cave, for example, um, uh, we we visited a a um, uh, a, a horror uh, a, a installation like a, a spook house, a, mo- a monster house, um, uh, like a Halloween themed kind of uh, experience, and we thought, oh, that should be fun, and and we went in there. And uh, uh, people charged right up to you and grabbed you. <laughs> I got punched. Uh, w- one dude walked up to my family and I with a, a, a gun. It, it was a toy gun, but he was dressed scary and, and pointed it at us. That was, That's unthinkable in the United States to have, have something like that happen. No, nope. all in a day. We would say, "What is going on here?" And they'd say, "What? <laughs> this is you wanted to go see this attraction. Have fun. Um, uh, so I should have known then descending into this cave I- in the pretty pictures, you're walking and the beautiful glow worms are on the wall and everybody's happy. Uh, no, um, uh, we were uh, led into uh, the system. Uh, at, at first, uh, there's, a, there's a wide open opening to, to the cave. And then the guy ahead of us, it's just the 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 three of us it's it's uh, me my wife Chris my daughter Evangelia and we're walking in and the gentleman in front of us uh, y- you know obviously knew how to walk on slippery rocks <laughs> and and was ga- getting more and more distant from us and um, uh, we 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 finally caught up to him and uh, and he said okay we're gonna go down into that hole go go through the tunnel and um uh, and on the other side is the glowworms. worms bye and and he, he went through <laughs> um the drop into the tunnel was um was more than seven feet it seemed to me and um and into pitch black um it was it was super dark and he didn't tell us that the tunnel was more than half filled with water um uh so oh. so i i went down and looked through that tunnel and there was just nothing on the other side. And there was, I was neck deep in water crawling on hands and knees. And I'm thinking my, my seven-year-old daughter has to go through this, I, it's not gonna happen. Um, uh, but the, the, it was so steep coming down that there was no way back up. Um, uh, so uh, Evangelia uh, uh, came down, looked into the tunnel where I already was, had been, I, I, was, I, I climbed partway through it and she, uh, she started to get scared. I'd never heard my daughter genuinely frightened before. So I'm in neck deep water. There are things moving in the water, Colin, because there is life in those tunnels. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and she's behind me and my, my wife could not make it down in, into the, 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 the pit so um uh i i I had to pause for a minute um uh to think about what i'm gonna do it 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 was it was so frightening you know colin to it it's it's fascinating that that the story is told here because it was pitch black um uh, and and a loved one's voice is calling out in that darkness and she's terrified and there's no way backwards. There's only through this void, this liminal space, um, and um, uh, and and that's truly the the lesson on the fly that I was starting to learn. Um, uh, <clears throat> there, there is terror um, in, in that space for us. That that desperate aloneness. Um, uh, what am I gonna do? Uh, I, I can't, I can't be that way. I'm a dad. so so I had to 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 roll over so that my back was in the water and my face was above and and start talking to her and and guiding her through this and and using humor and um, uh, uh, and and logic um, uh, to have her. Uh, start to, to navigate this. Um, uh, my wife picked up on that from from above, and between the two of us, she started to move, and and move through it. and uh, And I took that tunnel backwards so that I I can somehow you know uh, uh, keep talking to her, and, and we moved uh, we we moved through it. Um, the the um, the metaphor of the navigation. The, the fact that we, when we are in the, those darkest of times, when we are alone in the void, um, are, are capable of asserting will in order to navigate, not rockets, not laser beams, uh, not atomic energy or gasoline, but the assertion of will can actually uh, push us through that space um, uh, to the light to, to, um, to the glow worms, <laughs> you know, the reward. And, um, uh, and, um, uh, there is nothing that, that makes your mind more acute, <laughs> m- m- more uh, able to find the words that you need than the, the urgency of, of navigating, uh, you know, with somebody that you love, you know, and, um, and it, it it worked, you know, and it was an unforgettable moment in that cave. That did not result in residual trauma for my poor daughter. She she bounced right back, coming out of there, and and, and we enjoyed ourselves. We went on to go to Weta workshop, nice in Wellington. I think my big takeaway there, sir, is
0: anytime that a Kiwi says, "Oh, it's just a walk," um, it's just a quick walk to see the glowworms. <laughs> you interrogate the shit out of that, sir. <laughs>
1: you know, he wouldn't listen. <laughs> it's just <laughs> you, 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 um, uh, you know, chin up and move, move on. <laughs> it gets done.
0: That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's fantastic, and, and yes, um, what what a fascinating experience, and and um, um, this has been amazing. As we wrap up, Jeff, and thank you so much for your time. This this is this has been a remarkable thank conversation, you. Um, very much bringing together everything we've talked about. If an imaginary or real younger person, who one way or another is struggling with something, but also has this urge to go into the world. Go on a journey to create things. Um, they come to you and they say, "Jeff, what do I do? How can I approach this? Is there any particular advice that you would give to younger creators who are on this journey?"
1: Um, yes, yes, there there is, um, uh, and and I have actually uh, dispensed this, and 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 it seems to be uh, somewhat effective. Um, the the. The, the commonality when it comes to, to young people who are experiencing these kinds of, of problems um, uh, or challenges um, is that um, because the way that they see things and have experienced things is all they've ever known, um, they are, are taking uh, it all for granted. You know, it, it's, it is just what it is. So uh, a, a lot of the work that I do with these young people is to get them to recognize the uniqueness of their particular set of abilities. You know, what is, wh- what kind of tessellating are you doing? <laughs> you know, what are you, what are you seeing? Um, you know, what do you find cool about it? Some of them say, well, nothing, there's, there's nothing cool. I, I don't see a- anything that's cool. And so we experienced the cool together. There was one young person that I that I spoke with, um, who who um, did micro tessellation. So so they dwelled on the tiniest details of 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 the objects around them. Um, uh, often hair was was a, a big deal, right. um, and um, and I said well. You know, please describe to me what you're seeing. Uh, you know, and they did, and it was, it was breathtaking. It was, it was beautiful, and I, I and emotionally, I was touched. And I said, "Do you, do you realize um, how beautiful that is? Do, do you see? Uh, can you admire the, the beauty of, of the way that wind uh, catches hair?" And, um, and, and they said, "Well, I don't." I never thought of it that way but yeah it is kind of cool (laughs) you you know Uh, and and so the the words that they are conveying to me that no one ever asked them that question before nobody cared no you know uh, or or nobody just was able to place themselves within that that person's perception and and so I would say, well look, you know, you want to be a writer <laughs> um can, can you exercise a little bit and and just write down what it is you' you're seeing when you tessellate hair <laughs> or uh, you know and and can that be juxtaposed with some of the other things that you're seeing? So suddenly and in a, in, a, in an almost fractal kind of way, Colin, this person's creative world just opened up because now uh, they're able to communicate what it is that they see, because they have fresh eyes on what it is that they're looking at. And it, it becomes a manifestation of, of skill, of art, of talent. And, um, and then we take it from there. Then it's, after that, it's, it's schooling. <laughs> you know, how, how do you you know, how do you discipline yourself to complete the project and, and all that sort of thing. So So uh, that wasn't a simple piece of advice. <laughs> I'm sorry, Colin, but um, but, but it is, it, it is to, um, to go through the journey of learning to appreciate what it is that you're seeing. Because what you're seeing is what no one else in the world sees. It's filtered through the magnificent array that is your specific mind. Um, and, and, um, and that's something we don't have and maybe we need it. In fact, to, to address your earlier concern, the challenge that we all face as a world of neurodiverse people is that we need to start sharing those observations and um, uh, and those experiences with one another, because those are the building blocks of a new kind of story, um, a, a collective journey story. Nice, the building
0: blocks of a new kind of story. What a what a wonderful note to finish up on. Thank you, my friend, um, Jeff. Where can people find you if 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 they want to? encounter Sure more thing.
1: Uh, I, I note everyone that I am largely involved in a uh, uh, a brand and intellectual property a franchise called Ultraman <laughs> Yes. yes. Um, so I communicate a lot about what I'm doing with Ultraman and that's not just because I'm an advocate for for my own work but because I'm trying to impart um, some some lessons about how um, uh, uh, the involvement, the validation and celebration of fans can turn uh, a, a relatively unknown property, in the West at least, into a blockbuster property, <clears throat> you know. Um, a Word of mouth uh, lights the fire on all all the corners of the newspaper and boom you get this uh, this, this huge uh, implementation. So uh, I, I talk about Ultraman on LinkedIn uh, and you can uh, link into me, but I also talk yep, about Netflix and a lot of the other things that you and I just uh, uh, talked about, Colin, mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, and um, and so that's a place to to uh, to follow me. I talk a little bit more about Ultraman generally on, on Twitter, but um, but we've just been through a kind of heavy season of that uh, at Jeff underscore Gomez. Um, and, and uh, uh, I'll be okay. talking more about these other things on, on Twitter uh, very soon as well. Um, and then my personal, you know, uh, uh, account is Facebook, you know, and I, I'm super easy to find. <laughs>
0: Nice. This has been great. Jeff, we're going to stay on the line and talk for a while, but that is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much, sir. Jeff Gomez. Colin,
1: it's been truly uh, magnificent. I'm in great company. I'm I'm friends with uh, a lot of the other people that you've spoken to thus far. Um, it's quite the circle. <laughs> um, uh, I I want to go uh, uh, on record as um, as one of the few people who hasn't had an extensive discussion on Elden Ring with you. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get playing, Jeff. You've you got to get your character off, Hey, yeah. uh, believe me, I have. And uh, it's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful game. Uh, but um, but yes, thank you, uh, Colin. This was terrific. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the
0: amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.